Chapter 15 of The Road to Mandalay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Hadley. The Road to Mandalay by Bithia Mary Croker. Chapter 15 The Chummery. The chummery to which Douglas Shafto had been introduced was a rambling old bungalow, and the edge of the cantonment, sufficiently close to offices and work. Although by no means modern, it boasted both electric light and fans, and the rent was fairly moderate. The landlord, Akin, a Chinaman, called for it punctually on the first of every month, but closed his slits of eyes to various necessary repairs. Among the three chums already established was Roscoe, a dark, well-set-up man of five or six-and-thirty, with a clean-shaven, eager face, artistic hands, and a pair of clever eyes. Roscoe had been in turn a junior master, a journalist, an actor. Dissatisfied and unsatisfactory in these situations, his friends had found him an opening where he would be at too great a distance to trouble them. In short, a billet in Burma Oil Company in Rangoon. Amazing to relate, the post suited him, and the rolling stone came to a standstill. Well-educated and intellectual, endowed with a curious eye and a critical mind, he was anxious to see, mark, and learn the life of his present surroundings. Out of business hours, Roscoe devoted himself to this task with such whole-souled enthusiasm that at times he actually imagined that he had his finger upon the pulse of this strange new world. The oldest and least prosperous of the fraternity, his companions liked him and spoke of Roscoe as a queer fish, but a rare good sort. Patrick Ormond Fitzgerald, police officer, a genial native of County Cork, was about thirty years of age, handsome, generous, and hot-headed, who enjoyed every kind of scrap and sport, including chasing dacoits and smugglers. He diffused an atmosphere of good humor and confidence, was universally popular, and invariably in debt. Chum number three, James McNabb, hailed from Bonnie Scotland, a spare, sandy, canny individual who, far from being in debt, was carefully amassing large savings. He had a pretty fiancée in Creef, who sent him weekly budgets, and the Scotsman. He owned a sound, steady ambition, and seldom made an unconsidered remark. Mac was an employee in the Irrawaddy Flotilla Company, where he was rapidly rising, so to speak, to the surface. Each chum had a room to himself, but they took their meals together in a wide open veranda, and were catered for by a fat madrassi butler, who did not rob them unduly, seeing that his accounts had to be inspected and passed by thrifty Mac, who ruthlessly eliminated all imaginative items. In their large compound their cook kept game fowl, long-legged fighting cocks from Shanghai, and other poultry, including the curly-feathered freaks of Arakan. Here Fitzgerald stabled his horses, a capital pair, trust an Irishman for that, 
and Roscoe a stout elderly Shan, ironically named later on. McNabb rode a bicycle, a useful mount, that required neither oats nor groom. The three chums soon made Shafto feel at ease and at home. They were lively companions, too. Roscoe was a capital mimic and kept his company in roars of laughter. Fitzgerald drew notable caricatures and could tell a story with the best. The McNabb, who had a certain dry wit, took the stranger firmly in hand with regard to finance, namely the furnishing of his room and other expenditure. Bide a wee, go slow at first, he advised. Just hire a few sticks from Whiteway and Laidlaw, and wait your chance for picking up bargains at Balthasar's auction rooms. Anyway, you don't want much. A bed, a couple of chairs, table, washstand, and tub. I have a chest of drawers I can let you have cheap. In the rains, the pictures fall out of their frames, the glue melts, the rugs are eaten by white ants in a few hours, and your boots will grow mushrooms. That's a cheerful lookout, exclaimed Shafto. Well, I have nothing to tempt the white ants. Shafto was adaptable and soon found his feet. At first, his entire time and energies were concentrated on his new job and on learning an unaccustomed task. He spent hours on the wharves along the Strand or across the river at Dala, standing about in the glare and dust and blazing sun amongst struggling, sweating coolies and swinging cranes. He had also to supervise his Eurasian subordinates, see Paddy shipped, and keep a sharp lookout for the delinquencies such as receiving palm oil or overlooking damages. In the midst of his daily work, Shafto was not insensible to his surroundings, but on the contrary, acutely alive to the strange, bewildering glamour of the East, where life dwells radiantly. He was interested in the ever-changing shipping, the crowds of strange craft lying by the wharves or moored to buoys in the great impetuous Irrawaddy, and the swarms of sandpans darting in all directions. Overhead was the hot blue sky, blazing upon a motley crowd, which included the smiling faces of the idle, insouciant, gaily clad Burmans, most genial and most engaging of nations. Down by the go-downs, where Shafto worked, the stir and press of commercial life was tremendous. On every side roared and dashed trams, mortar lorries, traction engines, and, curious anachronism, long strings of heavily laden bullock carts. Here was trade from the ends and corners of the earth. Out of her abundance, this rich country was shipping to the nations wood, oil, rice, metals, cotton, tea, silken stuff, ivory, jade, and precious stones. Masses of cargo lay piled on the wharves, amid which a multitude of noisy coolies, busy as ants, went to and fro incessantly, whilst in the distance the sawmills screamed, the steam dredgers clanked, and tall factory chimneys blackened the heavens. All this amazing, restless activity seemed strangely out of its natural perspective. 
the scene should have been laid in Liverpool or Glasgow instead of displaying a background of palms, tropical trees, gilded pagodas, and a circle of gaily dressed, idled natives. Although the British and German residents did not assimilate, Shafto saw a good deal of their mercantile element. At ten o'clock every morning, hundreds of Teuton clerks poured into Rangoon from the surrounding neighborhood, and he could not but admire their indefatigable business activity, tireless industry, and worldwide radius of action. Long, long after British firms had closed for the day, and their employees had rushed off to amuse themselves at football, golf, or boating, the German was still sticking to it and hard at work. But there was another feature of which Shafto was aware, and could not applaud. This was the spy system. There were rumors of an active gang, manipulated from Berlin, whose business it was to discover what English firms were doing in the way of large contracts, and subsequently to enter into competition, cut out and undersell. It was said that their methods were both prompt and ruthless. It was also hinted that one or two firms winked at contraband, offered irresistible bribes, and made fabulous profits. The individual characteristics of his fellow inmates were soon impressed upon Shafto, and the interest they evinced in him, a mere stranger, was undeniably agreeable to his amour propre. McNabb, who was sincerely concerned about his financial affairs, instructed him in many clever economies, and the localities of the cheapest shops. He was also empathic on the subject of cautious outlay, and full of warning against the horrors of a rainy day. Fitzgerald, on the contrary, was eloquent in favor of the best that was going and hang the expense. "'You'll want two horses, my boy,' he announced. "'If you're going in for paper-chasing and gymkhana, you might chance on a bargain, too. I heard of a fellow who got a wonder for three hundred rupees, an ugly, eunuched brute, but he carried off the gold cup and every blessed thing he was entered for.' On the other hand, such a windfall is a very outside chance. Then you must have a small car for the reins. I believe you would get a nice little Ford for six hundred rupees. Shafto received this advice with a shout of laughter. A racer and a car on four hundred rupees a month? Fitzgerald, you are raving mad. If I followed your advice, he paused. "'You would soon be shunted out of Gregory's,' supplemented McNabb, who, with impassive face, was lolling in a long chair, a silent but attentive listener. "'Ah, don't be minding that fellow,' protested Fitzgerald. "'Sure, he'd sell up his father's gravestone, if he ever had the heart to put it up.' "'Well, I pay my way, Fitz, and can walk down Fair Street. At my case, whilst you—' He paused significantly. Oh, well, I own a few bills, I know. Six hundred rupees a month goes no way here, but it'll be all right when my ship comes in. Anyhow, I'll have a good time. I'll have that to look back upon when I'm an old fellow upon the shelf. Now you, 
suddenly turning to stare at McNabb. Never spend a rupee. You wouldn't take a taxi to save your life. Never go to a cinema or a concert. Nothing that costs money. You just bicycle and drink lemon squashes and ride home. Oh, if you want to ride in taxis and go to cinemas, you might as well be in London, put in Roscoe, who had joined them. I wish to the Lord I was, declared Fitzgerald, standing at the corner of Piccadilly Circus this blessed minute, and making up my mind whether to go to the Criterion Grill or to Prince's. But as you happen to be in Rangoon, and not Piccadilly Circus, why don't you open your eyes and see the place, and enjoy it? Enjoy, repeated Fitzgerald, with a dramatic gesture. See it? I see a deal too much of it. While you fellows are in bed, I'm turning out filthy liquor shops, drug stores, tea houses, and stopping Chinese fights, smuggling and murder. Yes, we all know that, rejoined Roscoe. You look into the dark, Shafto, and I see the bright side of this country. Oh, yes, you're a bright pair, and here I'm off, exclaimed the police officer, and suddenly caught sight of a mounted orderly and thundered down the stairs. Roscoe was neither economical nor yet extravagant. He patronized the theaters and shows, made expeditions into the country on later on, read many books, and occasionally took a trip up the river in a cargo boat. Shafto and Roscoe had one taste in common, a craving to see, know, understand, and, as it were, get under the skin of this wonderful land. An impossible achievement. From the first they had been drawn together. They were searching in an eager way for the same object. They had both been at a public school, and once when Shafto dropped a word about Sandhurst, Roscoe said, I was intended for the army, but I couldn't pass the doctor. Rather a facer after scraping through the exam. When that was knocked on the head, I got a post as assistant master, but I couldn't stick it for more than a couple of years. After that, I was in a newspaper office. Then I got badly stage-struck and went on the boards. Unfortunately, I was not a success. I never could do the love parts. I neither bellowed nor whined. At last my people got fairly sick of me. I was so often resting, and they made a combined effort and hustled me out here into the oil business. And here I am in my element. I can't say you look particularly oily, observed his companion. Perhaps not, but I dare say to lots of young fellows I seem a dry old stick. Anyhow, I was a stick in the profession. Occasionally Roscoe invited Shafto to accompany him of an evening, and introduced him to strange and wonderful sights, wrestling, cockfighting, puppet plays, or plays in the Burmese character. These were acted by little figures wonderfully manipulated by strings behind the scenes. The holder of the string also supplied any amount of dialogue, not always the most decorous description, and also all the latest and coarsest jokes from the bazaar. To the Europeans these entertainments offered scanty amusement, but to natives they proved enthralling. 
an audience would sit spellbound and motionless for a whole night soothed and cheered by the strains of the burmese band that unique and original collection of sounds and instruments in former days explained roscoe as he and his companion sat staring at the bedizened actors and shrill little figures on a long low stage these plays took place in the open air on a medan all the world was welcome and there was no charge naturally all the world was present they were usually given by some rich bourbon or widow in honor of some offering or anniversary an uncle of mine was quartered here years ago and i remember him saying that he suffered sorely from these plays one play lasted for three consecutive nights the burmese brought their bedding the great medan outside his bungalow was a seething mass of people whose families were encamped the place resembled a huge fair some were bartering gambling or eating horrible-looking refreshment and altogether thoroughly enjoying themselves rows and rows squatted motionlessly on the ground in front of the stage of course sleep with such a fiendish commotion was out of the question and so my uncle was obliged to get up and wander about among the masses until daybreak he said he never could make head or tail of the play but said one of his brother officers loved it he engaged an interpreter and squatted for hours in the front of the stage enjoying what he considered a priceless treat shafto like roscoe's uncle failed to appreciate plays which were now held within stated bounds he preferred out-of-door entertainments as the heat the smoke the smell of raw plantain skins the band and the jabber were too much for him roscoe his cicerone had contrived to learn a little of the difficult burmese language and knew the town to a certain extent including something of the vast underworld and even fitzgerald admitted that old man roscoe could tell a thing or two if he liked before he had been long in rangoon shafto had also a glimpse into its depths one night returning from a sing-song as he reached the bottom of the outer stairs he was startled by a voice from the pitch-dark space beneath the house a voice that said in a husky whisper is that you joe joe for god's sake stop and give me a couple of ru rupees it's not roscoe said shafto striking a match who are you the flickering and uncertain light discovered a gaunt and unshaven european in the shabbiest of clothes roscoe's out what do you want he brusquely demanded only a couple of rupees was the hoarse reply i'm ashamed for you to see me i'm down and under as you may guess drink suggested shafto lighting another match no drugs two devils cocaine and morphia i say that's bad can't you take a pull at yourself too late now nothing's too late declared shafto believe that and buck up well here are four rupees for you and he put them into a shaking hand and the match went out and the loafer noiselessly melted away into the soft and impenetrable darkness next morning shafto informed roscoe 
of this strange encounter. Such a waterlogged derelict was never seen. One of your underworld friends, I take it? Worse than that, rejoined Roscoe. He's my own first cousin. In reply to Shafto's exclamation, he added, his father was the officer I told you about, who was so terribly worried by the plays. This chap was erratic, but a clever fellow, and great at languages. He passed into the woods and forests out here, and enjoyed the wild jungle life for a good many years. Now you see what he is, a wild man of the bazaars. But I say, Roscoe, can you do nothing? Absolutely nothing. A cocaine case is hopeless. Opium you might tackle. The other is beyond the power of man or woman. But how does the fellow live? God knows, replied Roscoe. Most of these chaps keep body and soul together by stealing. There's a lot of smuggling going on in Burma. And I shouldn't be the least surprised if my cousin Richard had a hand in that. End of chapter 15